I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll think about this. Lord God, uh, whatever our background, whatever our, I guess, the baggage we carry around gender and, and men and women and work and relationships and roles, whatever our history, whatever our particular sort of place we're on on our spiritual journeys, I pray that this evening you will speak to us and help us be humble and attentive to what you have to say. And uh, Holy Spirit, guide us into truth. And we ask this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So this text is the uh, locus classicus of texts for Mother's Day. It's the classic text that gets wheeled out in some churches for Mother's Day. Uh, I've never spoken on this text, and I've never spoken on it on Mother's Day. And someone said to me after church this morning, Oh, you're very brave to preach on Proverbs 31. And I thought, well, no, not really. Um, not at all. I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful text. I don't know about you. You guys are a little bit younger as I look out on some of the women here. When you heard this text read, what did it make you feel as you listened to this description? Intimidated? Yeah. Sorry? Inadequate? So uh, almost every woman I've spoken to over the last couple of weeks has been preparing this and thinking about this. When they, particularly the, the older women who've had a crack at life for a while, you hear these, this, the, the, this passage and it's like, oh man, this is just overwhelming. Like who on earth could do this? So it's like, hey, welcome to Mother's Day, everybody. You mothers, you're here. It's fantastic. We're so glad you're here. Let's affirm you by putting up on the screen a job description of a superwoman and make you feel guilty and inadequate because you haven't achieved that. That was our strategy, and it's worked quite well. Um, it does seem, though, isn't it true, women, that there is a deep sense that is triggered very easily in women that you're not enough. What you do and who you are is never quite enough. And the way this text is read and used in the church can often tap right into that. I saw that with my mum, who was... Uh, you know, this really smart, feisty doctor who, uh, you know, she was a refugee. She uh, went through medical school in South Africa when there were very few women in her class. There were about three of them. There were no other, you know, very few Jews, still largely anti-Semitic culture. And uh, mum went through and then difficult life, raised two boys, uh, two, you know, not that easy boys as a single mum. But my mum always had the sense in her life that she was never enough. Never rich enough, never skinny enough, even though she was, you know, had an eating disorder and was raked thin, and never had enough energy and was never a good enough mom. Now she had the Jewish guilt. She'd converted to Catholicism to marry my dad, so she had Catholic and Jewish guilt. But it's there inside so many women. It's, you're never good enough. It's never enough. And that is so far from the Bible's view of, of women and of men, but particularly women. And this text is meant to do anything but make you feel inadequate or intimidated. I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. The most important of which is this is a celebration of women, but it's primarily directed, this text is directed at men. So there's an imperative at the end of the, of the proverb uh, in verse 31, and it's a command uh, to uh, the husband uh, and to the men 
honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. So this is, you know how this, this proverb works in uh, religious Jewish communities? Actually, it's a proverb that is put to music and the hus- husband is to sing the proverb of praise to his wife every Shabbat, every Sabbath, every Friday night. You sing to your wife. And you praise her, and you honor her, and you esteem her, and you go, wow, you're just amazing. Every week, you've got to do that. Like the Sabbath is awesome, right? It might also have something to do with part of the, the rabbis teach on the Sabbath. It's also your, your religious duty to have sex. So there might be a connection there, but that's something we'll explore next week when we look at Song of Songs. So, you know, come back for that installment. It should be fun. Um, there's a deep culture of praising and upholding women. Now, uh, I'll tell you another little interesting thing I discovered when I was working on this. So firstly, women, this is an instruction to men to affirm and value women. But it's affirming and valuing a particular sort of woman. Okay? And uh, have a look at this. Uh, verse 10 here, it says, A wife of noble character. What's noble character? I hear you ask. Well, let me give you, let me tell you something very interesting I discovered. Do you know that the, the Hebrew word underneath this word, no, these two words, noble character, the Hebrew elsewhere in the Bible, when it's applied to men, typically is that the Hebrew connotes it's valiant or strong. So it's a word that is used in, in military contexts to describe strong, valiant, courageous men. So actually the text is saying a a strong, valiant, courageous wife who goes out into the world and lives well, she is, you know, rare. So it got me thinking, why do you think it is that the largely male translators of the text took this Hebrew word and translated it noble character? instead of valiant and strong. Sorry? Misogyny. Yeah. A more charitable interpretation is um, a deeply embedded unconscious bias that is within all of us uh, to see women as, as weaker and less adequate than men. And this bias is profound, and it affects women as well as men. So um, I was talking with someone in our church last week, or two weeks ago, over, over dinner here one Sunday night. And she's a lawyer, a partner in a law firm, specializes in employment law and diversity and all that good stuff. And she was telling me about the, experiment, the, uh, the, the experiments they've done to show how deep this unconscious bias against women is, where they would have uh, uh, women on an interviewing panel, they would take identical CVs, in applying for a job, and simply change the names. One CV would get a male name, the other CV would get a female name, and guess what? All the women would rate the male-named CV as more competent and more suited for the job than the female-named CV. As women doing it. Now, of course, men in the interviewing panels did exactly the same thing. So there is, and I think this is the result of the fall, and I haven't done enough study, and I can't tell you if this is true across all cultures, but certainly deeply embedded in our culture is a, is a deep unconscious bias against strong, competent women. We, like to, we much more easily think of men as strong and competent, and we don't think of women that way. Now, the good thing about Proverbs is it does. 
Proverbs 31 is, a, is, is praise of strong, valiant women. Yes! That's, you know, that's who the Bible affirms. That's what matters. One of the, one of the reasons we're doing this series, and I'm so passionate about this, is our, our role in the city, I think the role of every church in a city, is to, is to renew that city spiritually and socially and culturally to show the city what it's like to live in the kingdom of heaven now under the gracious rule of Jesus. And so we, as a, as a local church, are to be a working example of how men and women are supposed to relate to each other, which means, actually, in Proverbs 31, we're to be a community that really values and raises up strong, valiant women, a place where women can flourish and find their voices and make a difference in the world and be treasured for that and delighted in for that. That's what the church should be in front of a world that is full of unconscious biases against women and often devalues women. Now here's another bit of background for this, this, uh, this, this poem, uh, this instruction to praise strong, valiant women. Uh, at the time this was written, there were many other poems in the ancient Near East and songs that valued women and praised women. What do you think it was that they valued and praised women for back then, apart from this particular one? What was the common thing they would praise women for? Beauty. And in particular, erotic beauty. So beauty tied up with sex and sexuality. Now, nothing's really changed then, has it? You know, I mean, that's, you know, what are women praised for? So, I mean, the, there's a, a wonderful, one of my great uh, heroes on the, um, in contemporary psychology is a woman called Brene Brown. If you come across her, she's got a, one of the most watched TED Talks. Um, on, and she's a, a vulnerability and shame researcher. And you listen to Brene talk, like she is, she's smashing it globally. She's incredibly smart, articulate, uh, being used amazingly. And um, you hear her talk, though. Do you know what people criticized her for on the TED Talks? What do you think they criticized her for? What she was wearing and that she was a little overweight. Isn't that amazing? So every other culture and every other contemporary poem values women and praises women because of how they look. Until we get to Proverbs 31, it has a very different vision of women. It says women are strong and valiant, let's praise them. So, and and let's, let's look at this, right? Uh, it's, it's wonderful. The more I think about it, it's just there's so much to say here. Uh, we're going to look through this text. The key thing is going to be what is ultimately valuable in these women, and the first thing is, look, they're rare. So that this, there's a scarcity mindset here with these, these women. There's lots of women who aren't like this. And the, the text says to this husband, listen, man, you've got, a, you've got a treasure and delight in this woman that you have. But verse 11, you know, we've had this idea through the, the series of uh, mutuality uh, and equality as key, uh, a key lens or a key arc of Scripture to understand how women and men relate to each other. To show you how significant that is, in this text, in verse 11, uh, it says, well, a, st- a, a valiant, strong wife, who can find? I mean, she's, she's worth far more than rubies. This is in, a, in an era where they had bride price. You'd, you'd pay for your bride. Uh, he says, she's priceless, man. You just, you, you can't buy a woman like this. Um, and then says this, her husband has full confidence. Now, do you know, 
you probably don't, but I'm about to tell you, that the word, that in the rest of the Bible, this phrase, full confidence, is applied to the trust that we are to have in God. And you're told not to have full confidence in anything other than God. Okay? Until you get to Proverbs 31, where he says, a strong wife is so incredibly significant that you can place all your trust in her just like you would in God. That's pretty cool. I think that's, I mean, I just go, what an amazing vision of mutuality, of spiritual equality, that you can, you can rest your life on this strong, valiant wife. Wow, that's pretty cool. Don't hear that preached that often. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful. So, uh, what exactly is that? Why is she valued? Well, she's valued here uh, because of her business, her cottage business or industry. And uh, this, the, the text up on the screen behind me, verses 13 through 19, really, it's worthy of a whole sermon on vocation and work. But this is one hardworking woman, right? This is not a lazy uh, eastern suburbs princess. Uh, apologies to any eastern suburbs princesses here. In South Africa, we had this phrase. We used to call them uh, kugels. I don't know if that's a phrase. Kugels were like a lot of my cousins, you know, wealthy Jewish princesses living in Johannesburg with servants and like, you know, never had to do anything except play tennis and gossip. Um, and this is not that. This is, this is not an indolent, though she's wealthy, she's a wealthy Jewish woman, but this is not that. This is a woman who works, so she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands, right? Uh, and look at else. Her, uh, isn't this great? You know, she, she, what, what makes her super attractive? What makes her so valuable? Well, her arms are strong for her tasks. She's a hardworking woman, and she's doing manual work. Now, this is extraordinary, right? It's extraordinary then and now. So there, there was a strong tendency in the culture back then to disparage manual labor. So what, what really mattered was to, be, to live the life of the mind, in particularly in Greek culture, to be a thinker, a philosopher, to, to live a refined life and never get your hands dirty. And, and we have that in our culture today, don't we, as well? We're a knowledge economy. Uh, everybody aspires to be a knowledge worker where we can do great, think great thoughts and do great stuff. And we sort of look down on people who work with their hands. And, and you go, the Bible doesn't say that at all. In fact, the Bible, there is, in the Bible, there is no hierarchy of vocation, right? Working with your hands, creating stuff, making stuff, this is incredibly important. And this is one of the reasons she is so valued, because she's working with her hands, a rich woman in there, sleeves rolled up, getting amongst it. I had to look around carefully this morning in case I did act, we did actually have any neurosurgeons in the house. But I said, you know, what's more important, you know, a neurosurgeon or a garbage collector? Oh, and I said, well, whose services would you notice most quickly if they were missing? You know, if your garbage isn't collected, the city literally, you know, grinds to a halt and gets full of diseases. And, and yet we look down on garbage collectors. But in God's economy, in God's kingdom, no, they're as valuable as a neurosurgeon. There's no difference. It's a beautiful vision of vocation. So what else does she do? Well, she is like the merchant ships. Now, the point of this metaphor is not applying. It's not because she's broad at beam. Uh, it's not the point. Um, it's because she's a... Tr I've got a laugh this morning. Thanks, Tom. You laughed. No one else thought it was funny. <laughs> she's a trader. She trades, and that's how she gets food. That's how she creates wealth. 
God is really pro-business. God is pro-trading. God is pro-creating surplus wealth so that you can invest it, right? Um, you may never have thought about this. In fact, I had this discussion with Margot, my wife, this morning. I, I normally talk through sermons and throw around crazy ideas, and I was like, man, Proverbs 31 is all about free trade. And, uh, and really what I want to do is have a whole talk about the necessity for Christians to support free trade. So listen, honest to goodness. And Margot was like, that, don't do that. Like, make it, no one wants to hear about free trade on Mother's Day. Just talk about, like, the personal stuff. So I ignored her, and um, <laughs> I'm talking about free trade. I'll tell you what. Um, what I mean by this is that the trading between people is an expression of our God-given identity and is the single greatest way to lift people and nations out of poverty. Uh, you know, we're all, everyone's going, everyone's upset that the latest budget has cut our aid budget by, I don't know, $300 million. I am not moved by that at all. Has no real, it's a drop in the ocean. Let me tell you what has lifted people out of poverty in the 20th century and the 21st century. It's been free trade, where the poor uh, are immensely resourceful, and when, when markets are opened, when they're properly regulated, when they're transparent, and trade barriers come down, people trade their way to prosperity and lift themselves out of poverty. So I think aid has a place, but what I would love to see is Christians around the world resisting fiercely, as a matter of great biblical urgency, the move towards nationalistic protectionism that is creeping into all our political debate. So Donald Trump, Bill Shorten, uh, the Brexit uh, guys, Theresa May, mostly the, the, the far right in the UK, elements in, the, in France, so thankfully they've backed away from that, are all, saying, are all saying we've got to protect ourselves, we've got to protect our workers, bring up trade barriers. That is a recipe for the oppression of the poor. Best thing we can do to help the poor in the developing world is to lower trade barriers and have a free trade agreement that encompasses the entire world. That may not seem controversial to you, but in certain circles, I would be in danger for saying that. There was a guy at our 10 o'clock service this morning who came to me afterwards, beautiful older man. The funny things you discover about people in your church, and uh, I'm walking out, and he grabs my hand, and he goes, Mark, you are so right about free trade. He said, I spent 30 years working in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Was part of all negotiating all the free trade agreements, very, very senior uh, civil servant and diplomat. And he said, you're exactly right. And people need to know that because they mostly don't. So there we go. Now you know, and it's here in Proverbs 31. She's a trader. Trading brings wealth, and it's a good thing under God. You can talk to me afterwards if you disagree. Uh, you're allowed to be wrong. Um, <laughs> thanks, Logan. That's good, man. You can come back. You can come back, man. It's like, you're better than a laugh track. It's awesome. Though we should get one of those as well, because we should get one of those, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, her trading is profitable. Her lamp doesn't go out at night. Um, so she's planting. She's earning money. She's planting vineyards. She works hard. But it's not just work, right? This is one of the beauties. She's valued in her strength, also because of her relationships, right? Uh, look at what she does, verse 20, with all the surplus cash that she, she has and all the hard work, she opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. 
She cares for the poor. It's what, uh, in, there's a tradition called the noblesse obligée, the obligation of the nobility. Uh, to, to, if, you, if we have privilege, we need to use our privilege and wealth to care for the poor and needy. And uh, this is what she does. And she, she cares for the poor and needy, so she cares for the poor. She also cares for her family, right? When it snows, she has no fear for her household. They could have other, you know, other households freeze to death, but she's covered them all in scarlet. Uh, and, listen, she is clothed in fine linen and purple. Now you go, huh, purple, what does that mean? Well, purple dye was very rare and very expensive, and wearing purple clothes was a sign of great wealth and high status. Okay? So she is wearing, uh, she, she is indulging in luxury and beauty. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you guys need to be told this, and maybe in our culture this is not what we need to hear. But, but you know what? Sometimes the way we talk about the world, it's like the amount of money or resources in the world is a, is a zero sum. It's a finite pie. And if I'm going to care for the poor, it's going to be at the cost of my own family. And you'll see this in some of the debates, you know. We've got to, we've got to look after Australians first. We can't care for the poor. and You've got to look after your own family. And charity begins at home. And, you know, no, 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 listen. Uh, in the kingdom of God, wealth, there, there is actually more than enough wealth to go around. And in fact, let me go so far as to say, I think being made in the image of God, working the kingdom of God, there's an infinite amount of wealth. There is no limit to the wealth that, that, that can be created, if you think about it. Because wealth is really a product of human creativity and ingenuity, which results from our social networking now. And as population density goes up and interconnection goes up, our capacity to create more and more ideas and stuff goes up. So I'm a, I'm a massive optimist in the kingdom of God, following from Genesis 1 and 2, that, that, that aid, uh, serving the poor, meeting your own needs, are, are not mutually exclusive. Because you can just make the pie grow infinitely bigger. That's God's plan, right? 30 years ago, everyone was saying, we're not going to be able to feed the world. 200 years ago, everyone was saying, we're not going to be able to feed the world. The carrying capacity of the world is far from being exceeded. Uh, we can feed everybody. There is plenty to go around. Uh, now, not only that, she actually wears luxury goods. Now, I'm, I don't know if this is an issue for you guys, but there are some, there are some you might come across this in some Christian circles. Um, I, I don't want to bag them out. And, I'm, and I might be missing the mark here, but, but sometimes Christians can have this kind of, well, you know, we're Christians, so we've got to be poor and ugly and badly dressed and not do anything well, and if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly, and I don't want to, sh you know, I mean, like that some, and I just go, that's not the God I know from the Bible. Like, beauty and excellence is, is close to God's heart, and she wears beautiful clothes, and it's okay. Right? Now, it's, um, you guys probably don't have that problem because you live in Sydney and you're pretty right-wing. But, you know, when I was in Melbourne, we used to get this all the time. Well, you are. You don't even know it. You think you're not, but you are, really, you know. Uh, um, 
It's a bit like the difference between the, you know, the Balmain Peninsula and the Lower North Shore. You know, we're, we're as rich as them, but we just don't like to show it, you know, according to the tax tables, like all. But, but it's true. So I don't, and I'm not, I'm not endorsing great ostentation, but I think sometimes as Christians we can, we can have this kind of, I don't know, we lose the aesthetics and the vision of beauty and excellence that is really close to God's heart. And we see that in all areas, not just in her clothing, but it can happen in music and presentation and all sorts of stuff, but it actually delights God's heart. And what I love about this is it's not at the expense of caring for the poor. You can do it all. You've got to guard your heart. Um, you've got to guard your heart. I had lunch with a Christian guy. I meet with a group of Christian business guys, and, and he's just, you know, he's, he's going to buy himself a new car, and uh, he's probably going to drop close to 400000 on the car. And um, I did suggest to him he imposed on himself a, a self-imposed luxury car tax. So he matched uh, what he spent on the car with what he gave to serve the poor. And I had a good charity that he could give it to. Um, Mark Leach Holiday Fund. No, um, International Justice Mission. <laughs> uh, but he's free to do that in Christ. And, you know, it's okay. It's not a zero-sum game. Uh, that's a little controversial. Uh, but talk to me about it afterwards um, if you would like. So that's what she does. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. So her world works. Um, she watches over the affairs of her household. Oh, and the other point I wanted to make here, she has this incredibly esteemed and significant role in her community. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Now, clearly, to uh, adolescent boys and women, uh, that's who she's teaching at this point, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's an in-joke about... Anyway, we'll talk about it more on the 30th. Um, she's a leader in the community, right? She's teaching, she's, she's pointing people to God. She's showing them the way of wisdom. She's very significant. It's amazing what she's doing. So, um, so that's what she's significant because of her business. She's valued because of that, because of her relationships, her teaching. And then the, the end result is a, this great instruction to praise um, her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Uh, so listen, guys, here's a take-home message. Every, if you're still living at home, uh, every morning, uh, the first thing you should do when you see your mom, wake up and say, Mom, you're blessed. Mom, I praise you. I worship you. You are so awesome. How cool would that be? Particularly if it's like 5.30 and she's still asleep and you're probably, probably going to smack across the face, you know. But it's just a fir like this daily, and this is scripture is so good, and Jewish life is so good of weaving these things into the daily rhythm of you know just rise up and call your wife blessed. It's like, yes, praise and affirm women. Uh, uh, honor her for all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise to the city gate. Here's why I think this is significant. Right, we live in in, in Australia. Um, now we have some Americans in the house, so that's helpful because I can. Yeah, we can contrast cultures. In, in Australia, we are a culture of knockers. We knock people all the time. You know, we don't want to be like those Americans. The Americans are just gushing and affirming. Oh, that was awesome. You're fantastic. It's just wonderful. Mark, you're the best preacher I've ever seen. This is incredibly good. And it means nothing, right? We all know it's just like words. Well, that's what we say. But, you know, on the other hand, as Australians, we're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's good. 
Yeah, wasn't too bad. I'm still here, aren't I? You know? Don't get too full of yourself, you know? Not that bad, eh? Wait till you screw it up, you know? Heard better. You know? Don't get too full of yourself. Isn't that, I mean, we're just like that. It's like we just want to pull people down, the tall poppy syndrome. And I think that that actually creates a culture uh, that is, I mean, it's funny and we all get along and it's just culture. But I think the Bible calls us to a, a different way of being. And I think particularly as men, I'll look at you young men and us older men, we need to, we need to not do that around women. We need to build a culture that is so wonderfully affirming of women, strong women, and not just, you know, and watch how you speak about women, you know, we don't just, oh, she's hot, or whatever. that's just rubbish, it's rubbish, you know, we want to value women, we want to esteem them, we want to build them up, we want to say men, we want to, when women come into our community, they need to come into a place where where the rest of the world is telling them they're not good enough, they're not skinny enough, they're not rich enough, they're not whatever enough, and they come into our church family and they go, I'm enough, and I'm surrounded by brothers in Christ who make me feel like I'm enough and I'm valuable. Oh, how awesome would that be, hey? And it's so important. Now, um, my Freya is not here, so I can use her as an example. Um, Occasionally, just occasionally, she goes on my phone uh, to check Instagram because her phone's died and she hasn't got around to charging it. So she'll log in to her Instagram account on my phone. And just occasionally, I have been known to flick through her Instagram feed and stalk some of her friends. Not really. Sort of. Oh, my goodness. The world in which you young women live and what is valued and you can see what's valued because what are, what are young women putting out on the social media to, and counting the likes and carefully curating their shots? And I'm looking at this stuff and I'm going, holy moly, you're 14. We need to, they, we, the, and I just, I look through her Instagram feed and I go, these women need to come to church and they need to know that they are valuable because they're strong women made in the image of God, not because you've got a carefully curated shot down your cleavage. You know, you're valuable not because of the size of your booty. You're valuable not because of your, your overt sexuality. You're valuable because you're made in the image of God and you're wonderful and you're extraordinary and you're strong. And we love you and we affirm you. Ah, that's, you know, I, it's urgent. I, I read a book years ago, it shows my age, by a woman called Naomi Klein called The Beauty Myth. Uh, sort of second wave feminist, Jewish New Yorker, actually became a believer through a vision of Jesus. Uh, so she's amazing, Naomi Klein. And I remember reading this as a, as, at university, um, and she made this point that stuck with me, that we all in the West get all appalled at the old Chinese culture of binding women's feet. You know, like what was really, really sexy and beautiful was, was tiny, deformed feet. You take a baby girl's feet and you bind them together and you keep them tied up so they grow up in this little, tiny, deformed, 
you know, and then you fetishize this and it's awful. And, and in the West, we'd all go, that's terrible. Look at what we're doing to Chinese girls' feet. And Naomi Klein said, okay, well, they bind their feet. What do we do in the Western world? Well, we bind women's bodies as a whole. And we say, unless you're tiny, unless you're skinny, and it's as oppressive and as sexually fetishized and it's as destructive and it's everywhere. And 20 years later, it's even worse because now girls participate themselves in you. That's, and I'm just like, we need, to sh we need to be an alternative community. The Bible is revolutionary in how it teaches us to value women. It's exciting. I mean, this is life-giving, right? To step into the stream of Proverbs 31 and start to see women in that way, and, and if you're a woman, to start to see yourself in this way, the way God sees you. And right at the heart of it, right, is this, the most important thing for you, women, and for us to value in women, don't think about your charm because it's deceptive or your popularity is deceptive. You're kind of the number of likes on your social media feed is deceptive. And listen, girls, beauty is fleeting. Let me tell you, the elastin in your skin slowly goes. You sag, you wrinkle, you don't bounce back. Gravity have it, has its way and it's gone like that. Okay, what really matters? That you fear God. That you build your life centered on the living God who loves you and values you, not because you're hot, not because you're skinny, not because you're popular, but he loves you as you and he loves you so much that he would die for you. So build your life on that God. Center your life on that God. A, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Imagine building a church, filling a city with women whose identity is so secure and so grounded in the love that God has for them that they fear God more than anything else. And by fear, you can think of it as God's opinion of them matters more than anyone else's opinion, right? But that's it. Like, God, what God thinks of you matters more than what anyone else thinks of you. And, and what does God think of you? God thinks he loves you so much that he was willing to die for you. Not, not after you'd scrubbed yourself up and got all religious. In fact, the Bible says while we were still sinners, while we were still just ignoring God and doing anything, that's when God died for you, women. And he doesn't wait for you to be religious or moral or got yourself together or skinny or gorgeous or popular or smart. Nothing. He just says, I love you. So build your life on that truth. And then that changes everything, right? That's wisdom. The Bible says in Proverbs 1, this is how the whole book of Proverbs starts, the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. You want to know how to live well. Center your life on God. Value yourself with the value that God places on you. And for us as men, we have a massive role to play in that because the women in our church, guys, you know, 24 hours a day, they're being told to value themselves on other things. When they come into our family, we've got to say, no, man, we value you because of your love for Jesus. We value you as a sister in Christ. We value you because of God's love for you. And this becomes a place of healing and safety and wholeness. <sighs> yes. Yes. Okay, let's pray. Our great God. Ah, uh, uh, just... 
just work in our church. Um, work, Lord, for, for the women in this, in this room tonight. I pray that you'll bring healing. I pray that you will uh, set women free from the fear of not being enough, the fear of what other people think. And they will find enormous freedom in life from fearing you above all else. And I pray that we as a church will be a place of healing and wholeness for women of all ages and stages. Because here they will find men who value them as women made in the image of God, loved by God, not as sex objects, not as only valuable because they're skinny and gorgeous and young, but as sisters in Christ, loved valuable, infinitely worthwhile. I pray that churches all around the city, not just ours, but every church in the city will be such a place for women. And I pray that this will bring healing and hope to people who aren't yet in church and in a culture that is oppressive and destructive so much of the time towards women that our witness to Jesus in this will will be healing and life to this city. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we've succumbed to the unconscious bias we all have. Forgive us for the times when we've we've seen women through the through the prism or the value set of the world. For us men, where we've colluded in in oppression and injustice against women. In, in sexualizing them and marginalizing them. Lord, have mercy on us. And Lord, where women have participated in that and, and oppressed each other, colluded in this distorted value system, Lord, forgive us for that. And fill us all with your Holy Spirit. Bind up our broken hearts. Set us free with the glorious freedom of the children of God. Give us a glimpse, give us a taste of what renewed humanity really looks like in the kingdom of God. And give us the grace to live that out. Amen. We're going to 